I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We are thrilled that you are with us. We're thankful for every visitor and every person who is here all the time. Thank you very much for your presence. In Matthew 13, beginning with verse 31, we want to read verses 31 through 35 and 44 through 46. And the reason we'd like to begin that way, Logan made reference to not saying things well. Whether we say things well or whether we don't say things well, God always says things better than we do. As pointed out in his scripture in Colossians 1. But in Matthew 13, verse 31, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has in that field. He, all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Four parables in those, in that short reading. Four parables. Two of them, verses 31 through 33, all of them begin with the kingdom of heaven is light. All four of them have that in common. What is the point of verses 31 through 33? What is the point of verses 32, uh, 44 through 46? We want to look at that in our time together. But, but you see, Jesus tells this parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Here you find things with small beginnings that have big ends. There is, there is explosive growth described in these passages of Scripture. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now, those passages, and when you find seven, the first 1720, it's from Matthew as well. But those are five passages in the New Testament that mention the mustard seed. All of 
them deal with an item that is proverbial for being small. Whether it be the mustard seed that grows into a tree or a bush, or whether it's faith the size of a mustard seed, all of those verses emphasize something small. And so the idea with Jesus talking about a man sowing a mustard seed is to emphasize that it is very small. Notice in verse 32, it is smaller than all other seeds. It is not necessarily the smallest seed in the world, but it was the smallest seed that the people of Palestine generally dealt with. And the Bible tells us that a man sowed this mustard seed. We have seen an agricultural setting for a lot of Jesus' statements in Matthew 13. As a matter of fact, 15 times in this chapter you find this word sowed. It's only found a little over 50 times in the New Testament. 15 of them are in this chapter. But a man sows this small seed and this seed that is smaller than the others becomes full grown. It is a large, it is, it is a tree that is larger than any of the other garden plants. And the birds of the air even come and find shelter under its wings. Now, sometimes a tree is a picture of a great kingdom. Now, of the two passages on the board, you may be more familiar with Daniel 4. Daniel 4 deals with a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And in this dream, there was a large tree that grew up. And all kinds of birds sheltered in its branches. And all kinds of beasts found protection in its shade. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom was said to be this tree. But a tree can picture a great kingdom. And Jesus talks about a man sowing a small seed a mustard seed which grows up into a tree which grows up into a kingdom now let me encourage you to turn your Bibles with me to Ezekiel 17 and in Ezekiel 17 I want us to see what God said at the end of this chapter has some similarities to this text, but in Ezekiel 17, in verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I shall take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I shall pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I shall plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Verse 23, on the high mountain of Israel, I shall plant it, that it will bear, it will bear fruit and become a stately cedar, and the birds of the air, birds of every kind, will nest in its 
under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches. And all the trees, the trees of the field, will know that I am the Lord. I will bring down the high tree and exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will perform it. To give you a little background, at the first of this chapter, there was a great eagle that symbolized Babylon that was planting the top of a cedar, and that was not a successful experience experiment. But God was going to plant the top of the cedar and it was going to grow into a great tree. And God said, I will make the dry trees flourish and all the trees that are productive, they will dry up. The high trees, which is sometimes in the Bible, a picture of pride, will be brought low and the low trees exalted. We have looked at a couple of parables about the sower going out to sow seed. And you remember that not all of the seed fell on productive ground. Sometimes one went out and sowed the seed and it fell on hard soil, fell on hard soil. Then it fell on stony soil where at first it shot up, but, but, the, but the rocks underneath the ground wouldn't allow the plant to take root and it quickly withers. And then some of the plants spring up and look good, but they don't produce any fruit because it is sown among the thorns. But some is sown in good soil. The kingdom may not always look impressive. It may look small and insignificant. But one day God's rule will be so clear and so plain that no one can deny it. And this kingdom, this mustard seed that Jesus is planting in his teaching and his preaching will one day grow up into a tree that provides a home for all kinds of beasts of the field. Now the second parable drives home the same picture. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took. I find it interesting how Jesus incidentally throws in the fact that a man took this seed and sowed it in verse 31. And then in verse 33, the woman puts the leaven in the bread. He is revealing that this gospel appeals to all, to men, to women. And he's bringing them all in this discussion. Now, if you look at the passages on the slide, Exodus 12, 15 through 20, you remove all leaven from your house. And when you remove all leaven from your house, in Exodus chapter 15, uh, 20, uh, 15, Exodus 12, 15 through 20, excuse me, then they celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. And 1 Corinthians builds on that as it's talking about church discipline. And it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
But in this particular case, this woman took and she puts this leaven in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, Josephus uses this word for measure or peck. And some writers have taken what they have done and they've amplified it. And they said, three measures of this flower. If Josephus' measurements are correct, three measures of this flower would have been 54 pounds. That's a lot of bread. I could feed quite quite a crowd. I want you to follow me in what I'm about to say. Because one, I, I want to express it clearly. But then after I express it, you're going to have to make a decision whether or not you think this passage, these passages are connected. The hardest thing in Matthew's Gospel, when we talk about Matthew's use of the Old Testament, isn't a passage where he just comes out and quotes an Old Testament passage. We know there that he's using it. But, but how many of these allusions or echoes are just meant to be part of the scene? Or are they a key point that we may miss. Okay. Now my passage that I'm connecting with it, this with. Is Genesis 18. In Genesis 18. As Abraham. Was at his tent. In the heat of the day. And the visitors come to them. Who we will know. Will prove to be more. Than just men. But the Bible tells us that as Abraham tries to plead with them, let me show you hospitality, he emphasizes how small this is, a sacrifice, how small a sacrifice this is on my part, and how I want to do this. But then his treatment of them is lavish. He tells Sarah, he tells Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, verse 6, Abraham hurried to the tent of Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. Now, the Greek translation, the main Greek translation of the Old Testament, does not use the word, same word for measures in Genesis 18, verse 6 as is used in the Greek New Testament in Matthew 13, verse 33. doesn't use the same particular word. But it may be, it may be that, that we'll see a connection because sometimes that Greek word is used to translate the Hebrew word used in Genesis 18, verse 6. Let me explain, try to explain clearly. In Genesis 18. What's going on? From the second 
We have met Sarah. We found out she's barren. Genesis 11, verse 30. It plays a key part of the story. Abraham gets older. God says, Abraham, I am your shield and your great reward in Genesis 15. And Abraham says, Lord, how can you make me these great promises when I have no heir, when I have no descendant? In Genesis 16, Hagar, or excuse me, Sarah is getting nervous because she has no heir. And she says to Abraham, take my handmaid, Hagar, and have a child by her. Which Abraham does. But that was not the son of promise. And when Abraham was 99 years old, and Sarah was near 90, God speaks to Abraham and says, Ishmael will not be the heir, but one from Sarah will be the heir. Abraham is stunned. How can he, a man as good as dead, and Sarah, whose womb is dead, how can they have a child? God appeared to Abraham and told him that news in Genesis 17. In Genesis 18, God appears to Sarah and tells her that news. She's going to have a child. That God is going to take their infertility and unproductivity as far as having children. And God is going to give them more descendants than the stars of the heaven and more descendants than the sands of the sea. And just like Sarah in Genesis 18 makes these three measures of flour, just as she puts the leaven in the flour, she would put leaven in the flour and it grows and it expands. An illustration of what happens to Abraham's descendants, how they grow, how they expand. That is a picture of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is like leaven which is put in in the flower and ultimately it permeates everything to the same kind of explosive inexplainable right that God gave Abraham and Sarah is the same unexplainable growth of the kingdom of God that it will experience explosive growth. I hope I have expressed that concept clearly. I want to tell you. In our world today. On this day, people pursue many different pursuits. In what we do in this place will not be considered significant or newsworthy. But I want to tell you, what you do in the worship of God in the service of God, 
in the kingdom of God is more significant than any athletic contest that's ever played. It's more important than anything that's going on around it. And one day God's kingdom will be so clear and so manifest that no one can deny. This is telling us that what begins small will have an explosive finish. And we often find that in the Bible. The people who were building the temple after they returned from Babylonian captivity were discouraged because this temple doesn't look as great as the previous one. Zechariah admonished them, do not despise the day of small things in Zechariah 4 and verse 10. And Haggai preached to those who saw the glory of Solomon's temple, but but they knew this temple was nothing by comparison. They were told that the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. And you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 that he has that great image of the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, and the belly and thigh of bronze, and the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And then there was a stone, a stone made without human hands that crushed that statue. And the statue did not even leave a trace. And that stone becomes a great mountain. And that great mountain is a picture of how God will establish His kingdom among men. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. The importance of what we do in His service will not be hidden. In those days. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? How do we respond to that? The two parables... In Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, are only in the Gospel of Matthew. Both of them deal with people finding something that's precious. And when they found what was precious, they parted with everything. To get what is precious. In verse 44. The kingdom of heaven. Is like a treasure. Hidden in the field. Which a man found. And hid again. And from joy over it. He goes and sells all he has. And buys that field. He finds a treasure hidden in the field. Now, you remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus told the parable of the talents that the one talent man went and hid his talent in the earth. And that's just a brief mention, an incidental mention 
of hiding treasures in the earth. Do you know how much a talent was? A talent was the equivalent of 20 years wages for the normal working person in Palestine. But here in Matthew 13, 44, he finds a treasure hidden in a field. The treasure is worth more than everything he has. What does he do? Understand. The point of this parable is not to tell us to imitate him if we find a great treasure in a field somewhere that someone else owned. Our point is not to commend him nor to condemn him in the sense of what he does with the field. Except in this respect. He finds a treasure that is so precious that he sacrifices everything to obtain it. And so in the next parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Now, in this case, this man was seeking for treasure. But he finds this treasure in verse 44 upon finding one pearl of great value. He went and sold all that he had. Do you understand that God and his service and his worship in the end is all that matters. Are we responding that way to it? I can remember early in my college days Ed Harold had come to the Tampa area and he talked about it one less cost. But he didn't talk about it in the normal way that I'd heard him talk about. He didn't talk about the deity of Christ or revelation outside of Scripture. He talked about Things that were right about coal. And he pointed out that some of these groups are the fastest growing, are among the fastest growing religious groups in the country. I would assume that's still the case, but I don't know that. But he made the point that there are a lot of people realize that if religion is worth anything in our life it's going to have to mean everything to and he said I was one time driving 
in a real remote area. Poverty-stricken area of Bangladesh. And he said, I know this was foolish. But he said, I thought to myself as I'm driving in this area, I'm about the first, I'm probably the first civilized person that's ever been here. And he said, that thought, and I know it's foolish, he said, that thought had no more crossed my mind than the two young men who were obviously American in blue pants and white shirts with a name tag come riding by on their bike. He said, I won't tell you. They understand that if it's going to do us any good and make any difference in our life, it's going to have to be everything to us. In God, in the gospel, the power to rescue us from our sinful condition and make us right with God. We have the treasure that surpasses all treasures. Nothing else compares. We have found that treasure and that treasure is worth selling all and abandoning all for it. And you find this. You find this kind of attitude all throughout the Bible. In Proverbs 23, verse 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. It is not for sale at any price. And you find that people responded this way to Jesus and his gospel and his preaching in the book of Matthew. Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. And he says, follow me. And they left everything and followed him. You know, later in the account of the rich young ruler, Peter said, Lord, we left all and followed you. Jesus doesn't stop him and say, listen, Peter, you really didn't leave that much. He left all. And follow him. In Matthew 9, verse 9, when Matthew or Levi is called, he leaves all and follows Jesus. And Jesus said, I have not come to send peace on earth, but I've come to send a sword. I've come to send a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own house. He that loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you remember in Matthew 19 how, how the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and ran with him and said, Good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him to keep the commandments. And he says, I've done all of these marks of him. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. But Jesus said, if you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have. And give to the poor. And follow me. He went away sorrowful. Because it said he had great wealth for treasures or possessions. That man did not know how poor he was. Those who reject his message don't know how poor they are. But for those who are willing, when they find this great treasure, to sell everything with joy to obtain that field, those are the ones that are too, truly rich. So I ask you are you poor? Are you rich? What is the one treasure worth sacrificing everything for? Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ. May God help me. May God help you to live these words. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God. What can we say before you? For you have given us all things. And even now, you give us life and breath and all things. You're not served by us as if you need the gifts of our hand. But you give continually, repeatedly, perpetually to us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. And Lord, we know that even these things are not the greatest of your gifts. For your gift of Christ is an indescribable gift. It is the treasure above all treasures.
And Lord, understanding that. Understanding how it is the treasure of all treasures. How your kingdom, which may seem small and despised, will one day be evident to all that it is our priority. May it be in practice what it is in theory. May it be our everything. Lord, you have allowed us so many blessings for which we give you thanks. Please do not let our blessings become a distraction so that we forget the one treasure above all treasures. We beg your help. We confess our weakness. We beg your help to imitate your words. In Jesus we pray. Amen. More could have been said about this text. So we want to give you an opportunity to respond to this treasure. You've sinned and you've fallen short as we all have. And your greatest need though we might not realize this in the midst of our world, is to have our sins forgiven, to be right with God. And the Bible tells us God did what we could not begin to do for ourselves. When we could offer no gift that was good enough or nothing that was great enough to take away the burden of our sin, God has given His Son so that we might be forgiven. That we might be right with Him. In the New Testament, you find people who confessed their faith in Jesus and were baptized for remission of sins. The blessing of God's gracious activity in Christ is the greatest treasure you will ever find. If we can help you to claiming it, we invite you as we stand and as we sing. No rest of the weary joy of the sad.
prayer, um, I just wanted to remind you, make sure to remind you, because I'm supposed to speak uh, in Alabama early uh, this week, uh, I will, we will not have Tuesday night class on the Psalms uh, this week, nor next week, but Lord willing, I'll be back Wednesday night, and Friday night, we will study Daniel 8 at our house. You're welcome to come. All are welcome. Thank you. Let's pray. Our God and King, you are enthroned above all, all rule and all authority and all powers, all nations. Um, you, uh, you rule with righteousness. You, you teach us love. You teach us peace. Uh, all these things are defined in you um, and, and in your kingdom, God. Um, we are blessed to be, to be members of your kingdom. We're blessed that the kingdom has come to us. Uh, please help us to be, be representatives of that kingdom. That's the truest, realest thing. Um, and bring, bring the kingdom to others. Help us to, to hold up your banner and, and to love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Until I think Tasha got there. Thank you. Until Tasha got there.